0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for coming this morning. So, some of you know who've been coming to the center, coming to these programs for a while, that we try to have a, a more formal recitation of the refuges and precepts around all the equinoxes and solstices. So we're pretty close today, the 20th of March, for the equinox tonight or tomorrow. I'm not sure the exact time. So we'll save the last 10 minutes or so to do this recitation together. And um, We don't have a lot of ritual or formality here at Kamgong Meditation Center, but we do keep this particular ritual or recitation. And in a way, traditionally, it's, it's a way of aligning, you know, and some people really like this alignment with the Buddha's teachings and, you know, Buddhism or the Buddhist teachings, it's not the same as a lot of the other religious faith traditions around these days. But it is something to align with these teachings and to commit to. But I want to talk today about what that alignment or that commitment, being loyal to a set of teachings, and uh, how it can be similar and different from some of our other sort of approaches in life. Some of you know that one of the most repeated phrases from the Buddha was, Ehi pasiko," come and see, or come and check it out. And I mentioned even in the guided sit that there's a real place, an essential place for a movement toward independence, where we're verifying, you know, what's the point of teachings that can't be verified in our own experience? Or a way of living that you know we're just taking it on faith alone so but the thing is we won't actually notice what these practices we get from the Buddha like being present we won't notice the value unless we do them <laughs> you know so this is the thing we have to actually check it out dip or toe in that works out okay, dip our whole foot in, eventually wade in, and eventually live a life dedicated to these teachings because we're personally finding them useful. We're becoming a better human being. And it's good to remember that there are risks to any kind of commitment And the risk to making a commitment, like to a set of practices, sitting every day, doing a little study every week, deepening our understanding, cultivating mindfulness throughout the day, right? The danger to a commitment is that we get attached to the idea. And then we, you know, feel like we gotta defend the idea. You know, we get identified and attached to the idea of being a Buddhist, for example. And you know, even within Buddhism, there are different lineages, different schools of Buddhism. And is my school bigger than your school and better than your school? It's endless. The but that only arises when the mind is clinging to some idea. So that, but that's a danger in commitment. It's hard to commit to a way of practicing without sort of creating some identity around the idea of the practice. But that I, that clinging to the idea isn't helpful, but it may be unavoidable to some degree and we want to be on the lookout for orienting more around the idea of being a practitioner than being someone who practices right you know we don't we're not that interested in someone who's a Buddhist but we might be interested in someone who's done a lot of skillful practices that one might refer to as Buddhism because they might be an awfully nice person but we don't need them to be clinging to the identity of being a Buddhist doesn't mean we need to be afraid of saying oh yeah i'm into buddhism or i do a lot of buddhist practice or you know i see the buddha as my teacher right these would be sort of ordinary ways to describe but still the mind doesn't have to cling and on the other hand there's also danger and non-commitment you know maybe even in a, in a way equal amounts of danger to somehow thinking i don't need to be dedicated I don't need to commit I don't need to be loyal to what my life has been teaching me is helpful (laughs) you know I'm totally okay just flitting about and moving through life in a relatively superficial way avoiding commitment avoiding that question like all those wise people before me on this planet Probably some of them at least have learned a thing or two about real happiness and the causes for suffering. I wonder if I have anything to learn from any of those wise people present today or from the past. And that just that willingness, that humility to like study and listen, <laughs> you know, who knows? And the thing is, We still have to discern because we might read something or hear something that on the surface sounds really compelling, but then we have to, ehi we have to check it out to see whether what the person said or what the person wrote, when that is taken up in my own life, with my own mind and heart, what are the results of that? And that, it seems, is the only thing that's ultimately trustworthy. When I practice in this way, when I orient my life in this way, who do I become? What kind of heart and mind gets set in motion? And is that the heart and mind I'm interested in living with? And it said in the tradition, the Buddha says, you know, we only have two trustworthy things. We have admirable friends, and this means people who we've observed carefully and they seem to have some attributes like wisdom and kindness that are I've observed are very trustworthy these are this is the definition of an admir- admirable friend and it's not a superficial thing we observe somebody for a while we see how they handle difficult situations we see how they you know, how they relate to money, how they relate to sex, how they relate to power, how they relate to their cultural conditioning around gender and race, and, and just the kind of transparency and the kind of resilience and the kind of nimbleness and humility and ability to learn and adapt and adjust. And only after a while of observing someone did we realize, oh, this is an admirable friend, <laughs> this is a noble friend. This is somebody I can trust, right? And we want to really stay connected as best we can to those people if we find them in our lives. Oh, this person seems to know something about being a wise and kind human being. It would be good for me to stay connected to them. And then the other thing that is worthy of real loyalty is wise attention. These are the only two things admirable friends, right? Other people who seem, after some observation, to have something to teach us. They're modeling something that is good for us to be around. And our own wise, balanced, discerning presence, what we normally call in Buddhism wise attention. Wise attention allows the mind, the heart, to clearly comprehend like the cause and effect, what's skillful and unskillful. So sometimes you can even refer to wise attention as a sort of spiritual and moral sensitivity or knowing the difference, being able to discern the difference between what's skillful and unskillful. And these are our only two trustworthy things in life. And that sort of simplifies it for us. And the other, you know, and the Buddha says, you know, he talks about this in a very famous sutta where he's talking to the Kalama people, a group or a village in India, northern India at the time. And they said to the Buddha, you know, about all the spiritual teachers that come through town, they say, and I'm just quoting from the sutta here. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, disparage them, show contempt for them, and pull them into pieces. So they leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt which of these venerable contemplatives, spiritual teachers, are speaking the truth and which ones are lying. And here's what the Buddha said to them He totally got, you know, understood their predicament. Um, Of course you are uncertain. Of course you're in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, Kalamas, the people of Kalama, don't go by reports, don't go by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability or by thought this contemplative is our teacher but when you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful these qualities are blameworthy these qualities are criticized by the observant these qualities when adopted and carried out lead to harm and to suffering then you should abandon them and then he goes on and he just says like for example you've observed right greed in your mind greed in the mind of those around you well what does that lead to how about hate and anger how about superficiality and distractedness and delusion right you can see like wise people don't praise ignorance they don't praise greed and they don't praise hate and our own experience shows us. So we have to undertake, we want to be able to listen to what people who seem to be worthy of our respect say, but we have to check it out for ourselves. And of course the alternative would be to continuously spin in samsara. Some of you know that word, the cycles of suffering. But it's really the the mind, our mind, is addicted to relate in ways that lead to the same thing, more greed, hatred, and delusion. And because we feel the oppressiveness of that and we want to escape, but all we know is to relate with greed, hatred, and delusion. In right? a classic example of this addicted, addictive cycling, cycles of suffering, Is like we're hurting, we had a bad day and all we can think to do is promise ourselves a reward. Well, you can go home and get drunk or you can go home and watch TV or you can go home and eat as much as you want because you had a hard day, right? And there is some pleasure possibly in whatever we promise ourselves and then give ourselves but it doesn't really resolve the cycle of suffering and it can obviously contribute to more and more cycles, patterns of suffering. So there's any number of ways that we react to suffering in ways that plant more seeds for suffering. Somebody, maybe we feel humiliated about not knowing what we're talking about. And our, our response to that might be to cling more strongly to our ignorant views. This is another classic example of how suffering can lead to planting seeds for more suffering. We double down, right? Maybe that's even happening now in Ukraine, where it seems, at least by some reports, that what's going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a big mistake. And, uh, but it's so humiliating to admit a big mistake. So what do we do? We double down. The last thing that can happen is for this decision to be made, to be seen as stupid. So we double down with our decision, our stupid decision, right? hoping for the best and not really feeling in, opening, seeing clearly in an unbiased way the predicament that we've gotten ourselves into. And that's the thing, you know, we oftentimes think of mindfulness as having this depth, this penetrating ability, but it also has this profound breadth. And that breadth is really seeing the big picture, seeing what's getting set in motion. Not that there's ever perfect clarity, but just the sense, as I mentioned earlier, of what is getting set in motion. One of the things I put in the that document in the chat uh, most of you have gotten it but I'll put it there one more time there's a couple documents in the Sunday resources one is a wonderful article by Gil Franzdahl that he wrote a number of years ago titled Natural Buddhism and it's uh, Gil's talk he gave at a secular Buddhist conference I guess and uh, he didn't like the word secular Buddhism he preferred the word natural Buddhism and it's really trying to get a sense of what this human being, the Buddha, taught. Because as you know, even while the Buddha was still alive, the whole movement was getting institutionalized, right? It was, it was a movement, and it had to get sort of written down. I mean, it got written down many centuries later, but kind of organized in ways. It's hard to control a movement. And then when it becomes more and more institutional. It always is the question of what part of it is trustworthy and what part of it is extra, maybe not necessarily bad, but maybe not necessary or maybe confusing. And what of it is just sort of part of the culture at the time and what of it is essential stuff for the liberating process, the awakening process of freeing up the heart. And this particular, this talk that Gill gave is also based um, on a set of early Buddhist teachings that he wrote a book on that I highly recommend called The Buddha Before Buddhism. And this book of eights is what this uh, set of teachings are called Atakavaga Sutta or um, from the Sutta Nipata. So it's a collection of verses actually. It's pretty short. um, And the The important thing about this book is we know from some of the other early Buddhist teachings recorded in the Pali Canon, that even while the Buddha was alive, remember he taught for uh, 45 years or so in Northern India, once after his deep insight, his deep awakening. So even while he was teaching those decades, people would at the time refer to these verses, So that gives the scholars a lot of confidence that these particular verses from the Buddha are very likely similar to what the Buddha actually spoke because they were referred to the monks and nuns used them even while the Buddha was alive. They would repeat them to each other, recall them. And what Gil found is just how little of the supernatural stuff that we do find in the buddhist tradition they, that was all pretty much absent in these early teachings they're really pragmatic and i want to just go through that because when we do take refuge in the buddha and the dhamma and the sangha these sort of traditional refuges that we'll do at the end of the program today it's really important to know like what do we what am i finding so helpful so trustworthy, that aligns with my own experience. So I'm not dependent on my belief that the Buddha knew what he was talking about. I'm seeing directly, not everything that the Buddha said, but I'm beginning to see some of the things the Buddha said actually are true of my own experience. So I'm becoming, in those things at least, independent. I don't need, even at this point, to know the Buddha said it. 'cause I see it in my own heart and my own life. Oh yeah. Being stingy is not a cause for happiness. Being generous is a cause for happiness. Right? We can have confidence. It's great that the Buddha said that, but we don't need it to be dependent on the Buddha. Now when the Buddha talks about Nibbana, we might need to borrow some confidence. Well maybe there is this unconditioned, unshakable release Maybe I don't know exactly what the Buddha means by that yet. So some things we do can verify directly in our experience and some things remain, yet unverified. And that's why we're a practitioner, right? Where somebody is like, okay, a lot of what the Buddha said seems very trustworthy, seems to align with my experience. Some of what he, he says, some of the deeper stuff he says, I'm not so sure yet if I know what he's talking about but I'm interested in just getting in the vicinity of some of these insights the Buddhist teachings point to, that just like a contact high of that peace, of that equanimity, of that beautiful balance that we can touch into, we can sense, and hopefully over time even much more profound, deep insights that make us, as the Buddha would say, independent. But we're not dependent on um, the buddhist teachings because we're seeing it in our own life but let me just review some of what uh, one would find if you read that book of aids if you study some of the early buddhist teachings what do we find the buddha saying and i'm so appreciative of gil who's not only an excellent meditation teacher dharma teacher but he's also a, a very skilled academic and has his PhD in Buddhist studies from Stanford, and um, yeah, can do his own translations and his own research into these early teachings. And the way Gill summarizes this particular collection is that the Buddha, in these sections is talking about the letting go of fixed views. that this is something that is central and talking about the nature of a sage. Like, what is someone who is wise? Right? Someone who is wise is someone who is able to be peaceful with experience. And then the third attribute is that the training to become a sage, to become a wise human being, you practice the ends and the means are in alignment with each other. So if you're interested in being peaceful no matter the conditions, then you practice being peaceful with the conditions that are showing up. And that's really the definition of a sage, a wise person, someone who's peaceful with conditions. One who sees and knows the causes for stress and the causes for release, and one who's peaceful with conditions. And then the training is Someone who practices being peaceful with conditions, and that really helps us so the whole path the Buddha taught is the personal experience of peace through not clinging non-attachment right so if someone asks you why you're interested in the Buddhist teachings or why you're interested in Buddhist awareness practice, mindfulness practice, and you can say, well, I'm interested in personal peace. And I sense through my own experience that it has something to, know, to do with being able to relate to the moment with non clinging and learning how to abandon all those habits of clinging, of attachment. I just find that really helpful. So it's a nice way to summarize. And then if they ask, well, what did the Buddha teach? You know, you could say, well, There are three things that Buddha taught. One of them is fixed views, holding to fixed beliefs and fixed views. The attachment, the clinging to our opinions and our beliefs and our views is a cause for our suffering, is a cause for quarreling, is a cause for you and I getting spun around. Because every time something seems to confirm my fixed view, I feel inflated and prideful. And every time something threatens my fixed view, I feel disheartened and uneasy, like maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> there's there's very few things as disturbing as having clung to some idea for a long time only to realize that we're wrong <laughs> at some point. And it's like, oh my God, what else am I clinging to that, you know, is not worthy of clinging? Well, pretty much everything. You know, we, we have to learn to live in, an, in a kind of open way and really see what life, that kind of what proves true in our own experience. And the Buddha taught about that someone is, be, is worthy of being called a wise person, a sage, when they're capable of seeing clearly the causes for stress and the causes for release and are able to live in a way where they're peaceful with conditions, no matter the conditions as they come and go in their lives. They have a a beautiful balance that isn't disturbed by the ups and downs of life. That's what we call a wise human being. And finally, the third thing that the Buddha teaches is the path of practice is in alignment with what we aspire to. So if we aspire to be free, and peaceful we practice being free and peaceful with the way it is right now even if it's not the way we like it and uh, people who are helping out like Nancy the uh, journal article was in the insight journal and it's called natural Buddhism by Gil Franzdahl. so if I accidentally put the wrong link in the chat today under the resources I'll correct that for next Sunday but you can just Google Insight Journal Natural Buddhism Gil Franzdahl, and you'll, you should be able to find the link because it is publicly available. And the Insight Journal is published by the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Great. So with the time we have remaining, if you want to go to the uh, the document that I posted, there's the Common Grounds meditation centers, refuges and precepts ceremony. And I encourage you to join in or just to listen. And this is something that people inspired by the teachings of the Buddha have done wherever they've been. You know, the Buddhism has now moved everywhere in the world and has been, you know, in places in Asia for so many centuries. And regardless of the culture or the place, they would take the refuges and precepts together. And as I mentioned, sometimes... Taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha is like Buddhist code for taking refuge and being awake, that means Buddha, to the way it is, that's Dhamma. And Sangha is the wise and compassionate activity that arises when Buddha is intimate with Dhamma. And that's just a way of summarizing what we're doing. We're learning to be present, wide awake, sensitive. With conditions, dhamma, so we can respond with compassion and skillfulness in our worlds, in our relationships. And then we undertake the five training precepts to refrain from harm basically. So you can open that up. We'll do it in a traditional way using the Pali language and you can just join me or listen to me doing this together. And this is a way for those of us who've been at it for a while to just appreciate the lineage of humans that have used these teachings to become better humans and to keep the teachings alive for the following generations. So we begin by paying homage to our teacher, we do the namo tasa three times. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama Sambutasa, Then we do the refuges three times. Budang, saranaṅgacchāmi Dhammang saranaṃ gacchāmi Saṅghaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Dutiyaṃ pi to taṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Dutiyaṃ pi Dhammang saranaṃ gacchāmi Dutiyaṃ pi Saṅghaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Buddhang saraṇang gacchāmi Tathyampi Dhammang saraṇang gacchāmi Tathyampi Sanghang saraṇang I take refuge in the Buddha trusting our inherent capacity to be awake and intimate the heart free from clinging I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting our inherent capacity to be willing to connect with the conditions here and now, moment by moment. I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting our inherent capacity to engage life with the vast space of wisdom and the profound sensitivity and engagement of compassion. So now we'll do the five precepts. And these are just training precepts that hopefully inspire us to live without causing harm. And we'll do the Pali, then we'll read the English together, and then I'll read the Thich Nhat Hanh's comments. Some of you know Thich Nhat Hanh as a... was, he just passed away about a month ago. Wonderful Dharma teacher from Vietnam. So the first precept... I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of living beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world. In my thinking, and in my way of life, this is the first of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. So, just thinking about what that might look like in your own life. This commitment to non-harming, and then the second. Adinadana where ammini sikkapadangsa I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given aware of the suffering caused by exploitation social injustice stealing and oppression I'm committed to cultivating loving-kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings I will practice generosity by sharing my time energy material resources with those who are in real need I'm determined not to still steal, steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering and the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. So again, just take a moment, let's reflect on this precept of not taking what hasn't been given. And what that might look like in our lives. And now the third, kamesu mitchachara, where amini sikapadang samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct. I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice it. Just taking a moment, reflecting on that kind of care around our sexual activities and not causing harm in this part of life and how that might look in our lives. Now the fourth Musawada Amanisami I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering knowing that words can create happiness or suffering I'm determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence joy and hope I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain and will not criticize or condemn things of which I'm not sure I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division and discord I'm determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. And again, just contemplating what does wise speech look like in our lives. What would that look like? And then finally, the fifth preset. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being and joy in my body, in my consciousness and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to misuse alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that undermine spiritual growth such as unwholesome TV programs, magazines, books, films and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with such poisons is to harm all beings. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. This is the fifth of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. And we take a moment and we cultivate. A sense of what that would be like to wisely consume in our world, in our lives, and to refrain from consuming what isn't helpful. And then we end with the short phrase, "Ida me silang magapalayana sa May my conduct conduce. May my conduct lead to attainment of the deepest fruits of liberation. In taking these three refuges, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy be happy. And that is the come ground refuge and uh, precept ceremony. And you can modify it or use it as is. It's, of course, based on a very traditional way of taking the refuges and precepts. And this is something you can do daily or monthly or once a quarter with us in community on Sunday morning around the solstices and equinoxes, or however helps you connect with teachings that you're finding really valuable.